Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. I'm Mark Wilson, a consultant with Jane's Intelligence Unit. Earlier this month, Facebook agreed to pay $52 million to settle a lawsuit by content moderators who said they'd suffered mentally from exposure to a range of disturbing material, including images of child sexual abuse and terrorism. This brings the wider topic of online research and mental health into sharp focus. Here today to discuss this topic with me is Peter King, an extremist media consultant. Now, for those involved in tracking the world of extremist media, Peter should need no introduction. But for the benefit of everyone else, allow me to introduce him here to you today. Peter's been investigating the exploitation of the internet by jihadist groups and supporters for well over a decade. He pioneered the systemic research and analysis of extremist online media, both for the UK government and later on the BBC, which you'll hear more about later. Since leaving the BBC, Peter has gone on to be a consultant, helping others understand extremist online messaging with a particular focus on Islamist extremist use of new technologies. Peter's also developed expertise in building resilience to the effects of exposure to distressing content and has developed a range of interventions to help protect teams involved in this work. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. So online research and mental health, I guess it's a, it's a poignant week to talk about this with it being Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK this week. Um, first question, where did all this start for you? Was there a particular moment in your career where these two areas came together? Um, yes, there was really. I mean, and this dates back to 2004. So I'd been by this stage a kind of journalist for about five years, first worked for AFP and then the BBC. But the moment when this all happened for me was when I was working at, at the Foreign Office for a year and a half. Uh, and this is when I first started looking at jihadist content, Arabic language jihadist content um, online. Um, and I was, I'd was i only been in the job for, I think, less than a week when I was exposed to my first beheading video. Obviously, something that most people would want to try and avoid. Um, but it was part of my job. Um, I had to watch this. It was the time of the hostage crisis when there was a UK citizen who had been taken hostage in Iraq during the Iraq war. And eventually he was he had his head chopped off and I had to watch um, the kind of the videos of them, which were kind of pretty nasty. Um, yeah. Now, at the time, only having been in the job for for a week, I didn't really have much of a kind of framework for understanding this. So it did have quite an impact on me at the time. And that's where it all, you know, my first experience with it kind of into uh, into the deep end as it were yeah yeah um and did you find at the time um that was kind of hitting you on a on a regular basis um so i was looking mainly at uh back in those days there was actually kind of like a less of a relentless stream than there is now of propaganda partly because it was kind of mediated through a bit more old-fashioned technology, so through uh, online discussion forums. Um, but um, it, so it wasn't quite the impact in terms of quantity uh, wasn't as high as it is now. 
but uh, and also the kind of the quality of the videos was much more grainy. But they, but in paradoxically, that kind of had more of a kind of visceral impact. Uh, it can seem more kind of raw and real in a way than yeah. some of the highly produced propaganda you get these days. Yeah, yeah. So going into your work with the BBC, so at the BBC you um, you led a team of jihadist media analysts, didn't you? One of which was myself. Indeed. Um, yeah. yeah, indeed. So, and this team was really at the hard end, wasn't it, in terms of viewing distressing material? Yeah. And I'm just thinking maybe for OSINC practitioners maybe listening into this podcast, where do you start to tackle this issue from a team perspective? And maybe can you take us through some of the measures that you introduced while you were leading that team of analysts to try and mitigate the effects of this material on them? Yeah, sure. Um, so one benefit of being in a team is that you've got the strength, you can build on the strength of the team, the strength of the individuals in the team, but this, the team itself has like inherent strengths. And um, I mean, I'm imagine a lot, a lot of imagining that a lot of OSINT practitioners may be kind of working in more in isolation, and that and that kind of gives makes you more slightly more vulnerable. But being in the position that I was at the BBC, kind of running a team, uh, we wanted to kind of like really uh, harness those kind of strengths in the team. Um, everyone is kind of has their own resilience, um, and yeah. you may not necessarily be aware of what you do. Uh, to keep you kind of self-resilient and most of the time you know I wouldn't be doing this job like for this amount of time if I didn't have some resilience of my own and I obviously had that enough of it at the beginning to keep me going until I kind of learned how to deal with it a bit better so one of the things that we did in in the team was to um, get together every month um, to actually kind of talk about the nasty stuff that we were exposed to. We'd kind of sit down and somebody would bring a cake or something nice to eat. <laughs> yeah. And it would be a kind of way of like uh, unloading or kind of managing, starting to kind of process the experiences that we were having in the team. And by doing this on, on a regular basis, the idea is that, you know, you can kind of help prevent the kind of buildup of uh, unhealthy kind of reactions to things. And and you also end up learning from other people's experiences. What are you, yeah. you know, what I may do something that helps me. Uh, I may do this naturally. I may talk about that. And somebody else may have never thought about doing that, but they may kind of then learn from that. So, um, so yeah. doing that, you know, trying to harness those kind of strengths within the team and doing this on a monthly basis also had the knock on effects that then people would be more aware of what other people's trigger points or kind of, you know, things that you met with difficult, particularly maybe it might involve children, for example, or mm. things like that. And then you'd be in a better position when something happens, like on a daily basis, to then be able to kind of check in with that person, say, oh, actually, I noticed you were, had to watch this, and like, how, how did it go? And so the team became much better at, um, uh, you know, supporting each other as a result of that um of that process and th and so that kind of initiative really came out of um a feeling that we needed to be doing something on a regular ongoing basis but mm -hmm. prior to that we'd been doing um you know we'd have like ad hoc resilience training or trauma mm -hmm. awareness training 
But it was we started doing that really in the kind of summer of 2014 when ISIS was taking over swathes of like the Middle East and uh, ramping up their propaganda output. And we started saying, oh, wait a minute, we've got to step back and kind of reevaluate our approach to all of this because it was all, um, you know, uh, we kind of realized we needed to be doing we needed to be doing more than we were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing there, you you began to foster a culture of mental health within the team with with team members kind of actively looking out for one another in addition to holding these these you know these monthly um chats that 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 you all had i mean would you say is that fair to say yeah absolutely i mean i mean i guess you know you want to i guess as a team manager you you're suddenly kind of burdened with the responsibility of others in addition to yourself it's probably quite easy to try and ignore your own oh I can kind of get on with it but when you're responsible for other people you start taking things a bit more seriously so we also did other things like you know trying to ask questions like regularly and kind of one-to-ones about this and also thinking about it in the recruitment phase like oh we're recruiting somebody new asking questions about kind of general resilience issues how people cope with things and what do they do when they're not coping in a kind of uh, an interview stage so sure yeah uh, uh, while also continuing with the kind of the general training around kind of resilience and taking up all those opportunities when they arise. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you discussed there the the kind of the, the team um, element to all this. Um, is there a, a kind of a, um, a personal element to it? You know, in terms of can you can an individual say you are like you described an OSINT? practice you know on your own somewhere um and you don't have the benefit of having a team alongside you um is there kind of something you can do to kind of protect yourself um um from this from you know any type of content not just extremist media but any type of distressing content um and is there anything you can do on a on a, on a personal level um absolutely um i guess there are some there's a range of things but for example Probably the the simplest interventions may be quite kind of basic and low tech. For example, like if you've got to watch a video, try and like minimize the screen to kind of reduce the impact on you. Uh, yeah. Turn the audio off, like you know, unlinking the audio and the video. If you've got to listen to the audio, only listen to the audio. If you really need to look at an image, maybe don't play the video. Look at stills from it. Uh, you know, do some of that kind of. Um, oh yeah. And, and you see that that kind of starts to take a back a bit of control as well over what you're being exposed to. Because a lot of the problem with this is we kind of feel impotent. We're faced with this suf- suffering of other people, and you know we're at the uh, we're miles away, the other end of a internet line, and we kind of you know you can end up feeling oh this is terrible like there's nothing I can do about it so at least doing some little things like that can just help kind of take back a bit of control and a bit of agency into your own hands and other things like you know it can be quite easy to just get addicted to looking through the internet and trawling for this that and the other so just again another thing you can do to kind of take back control is just to kind of stand up and walk away from the computer screen it might seem pretty simple thing to do Actually, in practice, it can be quite difficult when you're kind of really getting yeah. into the into those little wormholes and you know burrows and like rabbit warrens of uh, what they like doing OSINT. 
Um, yeah. So actually, just kind of trying to take things back into your own hands, like step up, walk away from the screen, it can kind of have like huge beneficial impacts. And I can kind of actually remember some occasions when I've had to watch something really nasty, but the feeling of kind of like, you know, I've kind of done my bit of work and then just kind of like walking away from it. And I just kind of had this kind of feeling of like, you know, all this stuff draining out of me as in like quite a positive feeling as if, oh, you know, that's gone now and I've gone. I can walk yeah. away from it. I mean, it doesn't mean you can do anything necessarily about the suffering and there's, you know, that's another, that's a separate um, thing. Sure. sure. So, I mean, I think that's such an important, important point, especially for in the current environment with a lot more um, folks working from home. Yeah, um, it's so important, isn't it, to kind of to try and set yourself up a, a safe space in which to do this type of work. You know, so it's not the type of thing you should be, you know, checking on your on, on your phone uh, just before uh, yeah. you go to sleep in your bedroom or, yeah. or, or yeah. first thing in the morning. You know what I mean? You've, you've got to kind of try and. And put limiters on on both sides of it, and um, okay. and take a bit back a bit of control. And actually, it's interesting you said um, in terms of techniques as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, take take for example a YouTube video. I always I always found that it, hovering over the progress, you know, the progress bar on a, on a YouTube yeah. video, you, know, you hover over that, mm-hmm. and you get like little thumbnail images, don't you, of, exactly. of what the video yeah. Uh, yeah. is going is going to show. And I always thought that was a it might not be 100% foolproof, but it always kind of gives you an idea of what may be coming on that video in, in a few minutes, which kind of kind of helps you prepare yourself for it. Gives, yeah. you, gives you that little space to prepare for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one thing for me as well, I mean, um, I guess when we talk about uh, distressing material, um it's images isn't it videos that, that come to mind i mean i can just share one of my personal experiences for me it was it was more about sounds rather than images that had more yeah. of an effect so I, I remember um i reported on one of these Islamic states um flames of war uh, videos yeah. and as, as you'll know peter i mean these videos they had an almost hollywood-esque level yeah. of production quality to them and honestly the production quality was that high it reminded me of a Marvel superhero movie or something like that. And and along with all the usual gory visuals you got with these videos, um, sometimes in this particular video in particular, IAS included some quite disturbing sounds in there. And I won't go into too much detail, but just let's mm-hmm. let's say they involve swords. And and these sounds, they kind of they came out of nowhere and they totally caught caught me off guard. So there wasn't much I could do to avoid it and it actually wasn't until a few days later I realized the video was actually having an effect on me and I was actually watching a separate video mm. and suddenly I feel I realized it didn't actually feel too good mm. and well actually at that point I actually had an av- avenue to deal with that because of some of the measures that yourself and other team members had, had brought in so I basically went and talked to another colleague about that experience yeah. and it kind yeah. of got it off my chest and actually the, the effect was immediate I felt better yeah. Um, yeah pretty quickly but I guess another question to you is I guess is is there a one-size-fits-all for this is probably the answer is no right I guess different things yeah. work for different people would you say absolutely definitely and that's why you know we're you know I was so lucky to be in that team where you can we can learn from other people as well um, but definitely 
one size does not fit all and different people will have different ways of dealing with things. Different people will be affected in different ways by things as well. But one thing which I guess is kind of common is that, you know, this idea of the dose effect of, of you know, this trickle of things on a daily basis. Uh, there, there's some study uh, studies done that suggest, uh, amongst journalists actually, a uh, study done that suggested that um, the dose effects and the regular viewing of things had more of an impact than the actual extremity of the individual items. Right. So, and this also kind of like speaks to the need for like regular kind of processing of things. And if you're able to kind of do that as you go along, as you just described, then it will prevent things from building up because you know it's quite one kind of response you can have an unhealthy response to all of this is to kind of ignore it mm. and um and uh there, there's some kind of thinking that's gone into something called compassionate mind training which is like based around like the idea about how you deal with how you deal with suffering and like all of this work we're talking about is about you know, we're exposed to suffering, whether it's kind of other people's, you know, suffering that we're witnessing. And, and there were kind of, you can either kind of cut off from that and ignore it and try and avoid, um, avoid it and, you know, hide away from it. Or the kind of more healthy way to deal with it is what's kind of called a compassionate response, which is, is kind of noticing this suffering but also like having a making a commitment do, to do something about it to you know alleviate and prevent it now in theory that sounds great now in practice how does that actually work if you're kind of a million miles away there's nothing i can actually do about what's actually going on there but it's it it's can be quite useful to think about um that one of the things that in terms of the theory that really stood out for me early on was this thing about a strong sense of purpose. And yeah. actually, if you kind of understand why you're doing a job and you can, you know, I'm doing it for this reason, it's kind of like benefiting for this purpose. Um, you know, in a way, it's my small part, my small way of doing something about it. And that can kind of really help just to kind of come to terms with it. And conversely, the times when I've had the, the, the most serious impacts on myself from seeing things is when I know that I didn't have to see it or when I didn't have to experience it. And I, you know, I can kind of remember the feelings of feeling kind of quite angry or like, well, you know, what, what's going on? Or you're not able to kind of process it in the same way as usual because you don't, there's no context for seeing that. I didn't have to see that. Why is that in my mind? Like there's no reason for it. And you feel kind of quite aggrieved at that. But yep. knowing that, well, I'm doing this for a specific purpose, it's my job, like I'll get so much else out of my job in addition to this, um, it can kind of really take you through a long way. And so just and the, the other thing I just want to mention about kind of like suffering is that it's kind of easy to kind of like, respond to other people's suffering but it's kind of harder to kind of actually we suffer ourselves as well mm -hmm. and it's and it's doing the same thing to kind of um what can i do to alleviate my own suffering it's much easier to fall into that negative unhealthy reaction in terms of just avoiding it and like ignoring it all and actually kind of doing this kind of self-compassionate thing whereas i'm actually going to like take time to kind of think about what actually might help myself. 
uh, whether it's something like stepping up and walking away from the screen or you know whatever else you may choose to do it, yeah. it's you know that you know just from an individual's point of view it's really important just to kind of notice how you're feeling about things and we we it's really easy to go on autopilot and um and not notice these things um so kind of having that monthly kind of session gives you a kind of bit of a chance to step back but also try you know if you're on your own just try and find things to kind of build into your routine somehow or other chance yeah. to kind of step back and just take notice because it's only once you actually notice things oh suddenly you sit there and think oh actually my body feels really tense i had no idea how long yeah. have i been feeling like this maybe for <laughs> years or decades um yeah. but you know it's only when you actually start to notice it that you can then even have a chance of doing something about it and it might be very difficult to kind of like start taking those steps but at least you've kind of at least it's a positive step yeah, exactly. And from what you're describing there, there's a, there's a range of actual, you know, practical responses that, that you can undertake that you can actually have, you know, help you in your in your in your jobs in in your lives, basically. But as a way, as you said, one size doesn't fit all. So, yeah. you know, what I may do, like Qigong or something, which is a kind of Chinese internal martial art, may not be appropriate for somebody else. Sure. Or, you know, so it's difficult to kind of, uh, it, you know, it, you don't want to kind of like preach to other people about what the best thing to do is. No, um, no. Because it may not be appropriate. Aside from all the, the, the kind of practical responses that you've laid out there, Peter, is there any theory underpinning approaches in this area? Is there like a theory of theory of resilience is there a theory of, of trauma i mean can you can you share any of your insights in that and how and how that works yeah sure um so some of the i mean i've mean, talked already about a couple of things um the, the strong sense of purpose like that was sure. one of the kind of one of the things that really stood out for me was in the first ever kind of bit of trauma aware awareness training that i went on was this idea of a strong sense of purpose can get you through a long way. And this understanding that, and it, so there's, there's various models of resilience, and this is one that kind of crops up in a lot of them. Right. Uh, it's purposefulness, having a sense of purpose. Another one is uh, social support. So, you know, having, um, being, uh, you know, having a, people to talk to about things or, mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of team, session was partly kind of derived from that you know getting together and kind of sharing things um there's a whole load of stuff around uh kind of neuroscience about how the brain works which is really helpful as well um so if you can understand how the brain's evolved then it kind of helps you to you know not be up on yourself about feeling mm -hmm. bad about things because basically the brain's evolved um, in such a way that, you know, this is a natural reaction to all this stuff that we're being exposed to. Um, you know, you've got quite a primitive brain, which um, has three kind of systems in it. So like a threat system, you've got, uh, which keeps you away from danger. Yeah. You've got a drive system, which, uh, you know, enables you to find food, find a safe place and, and reproduce and all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, and then you've got like a kind of a rest and safety system or kind of which enables you to 
recharge your batteries and digest your food. So that's all kind of like when we were animals. And then later on, as the brain evolved, you know, we became more, we developed more kind of cognitive abilities, the ability to kind of think, uh, which had like, you know, obviously very positive advantages in terms of being able to invent tools and things like this and survive. But it, uh, but that new kind of new brain um, also um, has some negative aspects when it kind of interacts with the primitive brain. So you then start ruminating with this, you know, ability to kind of ruminate and and mm-hmm. think too much about the threats. So if you're kind of in a job where you, you know you're exposed to things that are a bit stressful, um, you know, whereas a cat, for example, you see a cat like it's, it's uh, maybe you see another cat and it screams out and its hair goes on end and it looks really stressed out. And then yeah. 10 minutes later, it's forgotten about it. And it's purring on, you know, the sofa. It's, <laughs> it's totally forgotten about it. And it's great because it hasn't, you know, got the same rumination as we do. Right, um, got it. And so it's, uh, and then you, you've you got that kind of potential for like, you know, your threat system is like dominating all of your, um, all of your life basically. And And how do you go about doing that? And you can go about doing that by trying to kind of, cultivate in a way the the other side of uh, which is like lo- looking after yourself or the, the kind of the the safety system the self-care uh, and the rest and the digest bit of it yeah yeah excellent um obviously peter you've conducted online research in the extremist media space for for quite some time now and that's that's obviously gone from looking at probably looking at just websites in the early days to ever more visual social media platforms today and I just wonder what's your take Peter on on social media here in terms of the role that that plays in the effect of content on researchers well yeah I mean you're absolutely right it has a massive it's had a massive impact over the years that I've been looking at all this stuff in terms of like the impact on the individual uh, so when I started out uh, looking at all of this stuff it was all through online discussion forums with a bit, a bit of an antiquated technology now, but it was yeah. much easier to regulate what you're exposed to. If there was a video, you know, you'd probably have to spend 20 minutes downloading it through a, you know, a modem or something before, yeah. uh, before you could actually access it. So it wasn't, A, the immediacy wasn't there, and B, you could kind of then decide when to watch it and all this. Now you've got, um, you know, this feed of stuff um, constantly coming through and uh, you may get kind of the same image like cropping up like repeatedly within the same feed everyone posting the same thing yeah. uh, you basically can't kind of there are ways of kind of filtering out images but you know then you have to kind of weigh that up against the work can I actually do my job properly without seeing all these images um, and you may decide that you can't um, so you have to kind of like deal with that to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the impact has been massively kind of ramped up. And um, I think even from a kind of production point of view, so from like jihadist production point of view, um, when I started out, uh, there was a lot more kind of, it was more of a kind of intellectual pursuit, as it were. Um, you know, the magazine, when I first started looking at all this stuff in 2004, uh, Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia at the time was producing this magazine every two weeks. 
and it was like a, probably about 40, 50 pages long. There are no pictures in it at all. It was all yeah. kind of religious treaties on this, that, and the other. And it was all kind of, you know, it was quite stimulating intellectually. Um, and some of that stuff still exists, but, it, you know, the, from the propaganda produ production point of view, it's much more focused on, you know, the high-impact visuals, the shorter length uh, videos, uh, you know, action movie kind of stuff, which sure. has, a, has, a, has a much huger impact and a greater toll on researchers. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the things I always find difficult to get around is um, is the, the scroll scrolling feature on mouses, the fact you can just scroll down web pages, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and the stuff just just keeps on revealing itself, doesn't it? Um, and not even in the in the extremist world, if you I don't know if you're covering a, covering a, um, a country that is uh, in conflict um, and yeah. you're following, um, you know, a load of individuals on Twitter who are you're analysing that and they're posting various different pictures and of course your Twitter feed is just so easy to yeah. scroll down isn't it and um, yeah. you just you just keep on consuming that that content and yeah it's um it just it's kind of set up almost in a way to to have much more of an effect on someone who's tracking this stuff online um but I just wonder just for those listening in who are perhaps involved in um maybe managing teams of individuals engaged in this type of work what do you think peter what do you think are some of the general signs to look for in say team members that might be struggling with what they're seeing and and i guess what some of the actual initial state uh, steps you could take in that regard yeah sure um i mean there are a lot of different signs that people might display um and so probably the most useful thing to say is that to look out for any change in people's normal behavior and so that kind of like encompasses you know whether somebody's usually an introvert or whether somebody's usually an extrovert you know you can't sometimes being withdrawn may be a sign that somebody's uh not reacting well to something but then if they're usually withdrawn and like introvert anyway then it's obviously not a sign um you know so you've got to kind of judge it against, so having a good understanding of your kind of team members in the first place is a good start. And obviously kind of learning more about kind of people's triggers and things like that also helps being able to kind of spot what those triggers are. Um, I mean, just within our team, you could, because we kind of got better at spotting those signs, um, you know, as you mentioned yourself, somebody came and, spoke to you about oh how was that and and you were able to kind of talk to them about mm -hmm. it. um or maybe it was the other way around you were able to kind of approach them so looking out for those changes to somebody's normal behavior is is the key thing to do i mean obviously there there is there are things to look out like for like increased alcohol consumption people yeah irritable or you know withdrawn and things and those are definitely things to be be aware of um but the i mean i guess this kind of comes back to the kind of like the the compassionate response as well it's like if you see suffering in somebody else then you need to do something about it and that can kind of help you and obviously it's going to help the other person as well uh but it can be quite easy to kind of ignore these things and like fostering that culture where it becomes a bit more normal and people uh, are able to make that uh, more compassionate response 
yeah. will, will benefit everybody. And I guess so, you know, just talking to somebody uh, about, you know, oh, actually, I've kind of noticed this. It might be quite difficult to do that. Um, sure. But, you know, you'll both probably benefit from it. Um, in terms of actually practical things to do, you know, obviously you can't give therapy to somebody and, you know, maybe able to kind of share some personal experiences, which may actually go a long way and maybe that's all that's needed. But if people are kind of, you know, showing signs that actually they're really struggling, then there are, you know, other things just to kind of flag, flag up other services to them. So, you know, your company may have like, we did at the BBC an employee assistance program, which is, you know, gives access to confidential um, phone line where you can kind of talk about um, any kind of issues that you're facing, including kind of psychological or mental health issues. Uh, that might kind of then lead on to some kind of counselling. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't have access to that, there's also in the UK at least, there's something called like improving access to psychological therapies, uh, which you can access if you just search for that um, online. Um, it will take you through to a web page where you can um, give yourself a direct refer yourself to psychological services without even going through your 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 GP or your your doctor. Yeah, got it, got it. Thanks, Peter. Um, kind of kind of just broadly broadly linked in with that. Um, just in terms of some of the, the challenges in this area. Um, one of the challenges we found in in the Jane's Intelligence Unit, particularly looking at extremist media, comes when you find it hard to even understand the logic of the ideology that you're encountering. Because sometimes I felt personally that that's helped me in the in the past. I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, Islam, Islamic State ideology, for example. Now. Uh, obviously don't agree with it if you if you look at it um it, basically it's the use of extreme violence to achieve in the end what is a political goal if you kind of strip it all away um but if you if you compare that to some of the more extreme or even more ultra extremist ideology we've been seeing so some of the the satanist ideology that we've seen mixed with sections of the extreme right wing for example for that type of extremist, the end goal is is the violence. It is basically about delivering more and more evil into society. So how do you even begin to, to understand that with the aim of protecting yourself from it? I mean, maybe there is no answer to that. Maybe you've just got to kind of, um, you know, watch it and do your best using the practical approaches you, you've uh, outlined. But, but what do you think about protecting yourself from that type of content, Peter? Yeah, it can be very difficult. And what yeah. another thing that springs to mind is also, you know, if you if your job involves like looking at kind of child sexual exploitation images and things like this, which you know, unfortunately, some people's jobs do. And like, how do you, you know, how do you kind of square that? It's like, you know, glad that I don't have to look at that. But um, you know, there are, and there, there are ways of kind of even dealing with that level of material. Um, I think it comes back to, again, understanding kind of your own sense of purpose and what your own values are and what the, the benefit of your job is. And hopefully you've kind of got a, a strong sense of, well, actually, I'm doing this for a, a good purpose. And, you know, to be frank, if you don't believe in what you're doing, it may be a sign that 
you should be looking to do something else. Um, yeah. uh, and, you know, you wouldn't want to, like, encourage somebody to stay in a job where actually it's kind of screwing them up. Um, so, you know, that's an important thing to bear in mind at the end of all this. We kind of have a responsibility to ourselves as well. Um, but, you know, if, if you do have a strong sense of purpose, actually, yeah, like, you know, it'll probably kind of help you through that an awful lot. Also, the other things we talked about, like, um, you know, talking to other people about it and just kind of airing your own, being aware, actually, that I can't understand these people's uh, where they're coming from yeah. is is, you know, just kind of vocalizing that and being able to kind of actually that's why I find this difficult. And it's kind of, it, as I said before, it's kind of, you can get on autopilot and not question things. And it's really important just to kind of step back, say, how am I feeling? What, what is it? And, and this is another great thing about those kind of sessions we had was it kind of gave you an opportunity to kind of interrogate, well, why, why did that particular thing really bother me when I may have seen other things that may have been similar that didn't bother me so much? And it may be something to do with um you know the fact that actually the people doing it were you know may have been a less extreme thing than some other group was doing but uh the actual the fact that it just seemed kind of mindless yeah. or you, know, you can't kind of put it into context just kind of understanding that in itself um can be kind of helpful so you know just being able to kind of step back and kind of reconsider things uh can be can be really helpful tool. Excellent. Thanks for that, Peter. Um, moving on, what's your what's your experience of the general level of, of organisational understanding of, uh, of this issue, you know, mental health and, and open source research? I mean, yeah. without without naming any names, I mean, generally are organisations in this area aware of the need to protect their staff? And is, is the commitment there, do you find? I think it is. I mean, the awareness has definitely improved a lot over the years. So people are kind of like looking to do the right thing. I think the area where there's a kind of slight gap, I think, is that a lot of the things people tend to be doing are a bit more reactive. What do we do when there's a problem? Or like, how do we, you know, offering kind of counselling, for example, is great. But in a way, you want to build these things in ahead of time. So you're kind of taking much more of a kind of preventive approach than a kind of reactive approach. Obviously, you know, everyone knows prevention is better than cure. Um, and what can you do? And I guess it's, um, you know, you can kind of draw a parallel with any kind of job that involves physical danger. And you wouldn't think of kind of sending somebody into that job without the proper kind of protective equipment. Like if you're doing your know, CBRN work, like chemical, whatever, you'd be wearing a full, you know, rubber yeah. suit or whatever. Um, if you're kind of in an NHS hospital at the moment, you've got kind of the right personal protective equipment. And, uh, you know, if you go onto a building site, you're wearing a hard hat. But we not so much geared towards giving people the right protective equipment for kind of the, the mental health dangers. And so trying to kind of build in some of those interventions uh, is an area which I think is a bit lacking. Um, 
in some in some uh, organizations potentially um so you know helping helping kind of introduce interventions which uh give people kind of degree of preparedness for this material um and that kind of protective equipment analogy is is really important i think yeah excellent thanks peter and, and now i believe you've launched your own bid to help organizations in this area right i mean could you tell us a bit more about that yeah sure so um my company's called ibex mind um i'm the uh a director and co-founder of that organization um my partner in this venture is uh dr david dean and he's a consultant clinical neuropsychologist who works uh part-time at the nhs and um, he's got a background in a lot of the things we we're kind of talking about already um so we basically offer training in this area to um, teams and individuals who are exposed to this kind of content um, but we also kind of offer these um, so in addition to the upfront kind of foundation training and some of the stuff we've been talking about we also offer facilitated ongoing support sessions where we will sit down with the group and basically guide them through this ability to start talking about things on a regular basis um, which can have all of the benefits that we talked about um, and that's something that i'm not aware of being done in any other kind of way uh, by other people um, it may be been done on an ad hoc basis within organizations uh, to some degree but uh, in addition to kind of like the generic kind of training which is on offer out there. Work, there's lots of workplace uh, resilience training out there, but as is much more kind of tailored towards people doing this specific kind of work. So, yeah, work where you're kind of exposed to, um, you know, the risk of secondary trauma, vicarious trauma from looking at nasty stuff um, uh, online. Yeah, I mean now more than ever, I guess with. Um the kind of the growing prominence of the field of OSINT. Um, I can only envision in, in the future there's going to be more and more need for the type of work that, you know, that your organisation does. I mean, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but you're also involved with um, with Tech Against Terrorism as well, aren't you, which I believe right. works to support the global tech industry and in tackling terrorist exploitation of social media. Could you tell us a bit more about your, in, your involvement in that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a project that I've um, just started working on uh, more recently, but it's called the, they're building a platform called the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, um, which is going to be a repository of uh, terrorist content, which will be obviously restricted, not publicly available, but available to kind of tech companies and also to researchers to kind of understand about the proliferation of this stuff online and to, to be able to kind of feed into the process of um, being able to do something about it from a technological point of view. So it will have kind of various tools for analyzing um, the, the content on there. And I'm helping Tech Against Terrorism uh, be able to kind of identify the right sources to ingest into this uh, platform and uh, providing yeah consultancy on, on how to how to build it. It's at the build stages at the moment, but hopefully right. they'll have kind of a version out uh, for 
researchers and, and the industry uh, at the end of this year. Fantastic. Where can folks go if they want to learn more about that? Is that the Tech Against Terrorism website? Yeah, it's all on the Tech Against Terrorism website. There's a few press releases about it on there. Yeah, that's excellent. Peter, thanks so much for your time. It's been a super interesting chat about this topic, which probably never really gets the attention it deserves, but yet is actually so central to the to the function of the teams in, in this area. It's I guess it's something that never really goes away, does it? But actually it's something that is always is always there with us. It's always kind of um, surrounding our work. So thanks so much for sharing your expertise. Um, there's some really useful takeaways for our listeners here, especially those involved in the security field who are naturally coming up again against this topic uh, regularly. So thank you, Peter, and all the best no with your Mark. initiative, Ibex Mind. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mark. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training.